Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the 1099 for the week of January 30th, 2017. I'm your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a research analyst at Wedbush Securities, the host of The Pactor Factor, and someone whose quotes keep the lights on for places like N4G and some popular forums, Michael Pactor. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Josiah, it's a pleasure. Uh, so I'm really not kidding when I say that myself and dozens of other people who have written about video games in the past have quoted at least one of your projections, one of your stories in the past. I mean, you've established yourself as this voice behind the business of games and consoles. And first, for you, how did you get to this role? Like, what really got you into digital media and the video game sector? Um, I'm a really old guy, <laughs> and I and I 61 today. Today's my oh, birthday. Wow. Happy birthday. And uh, and I had a, uh, a career as a tax lawyer, followed by doing M and A for about a dozen years. And so being an M&A guy allowed me to look at businesses and figure out what they were worth. And I did about 200 transactions. So I, I, I was constantly looking at new businesses and kind of assessing their value. And, and so when I found myself briefly unemployed in the very late 90s, a friend of mine suggested that I apply to be the director of research at Wedbush, uh, and I did. And I didn't actually know what research was, and I didn't understand what research analysts did. And I uh, got the job the same day that I interviewed, um, ended up building a research department. We now have about, gosh, I think 16 or 17 analysts. And uh, after being the boss for three years, I realized that it was – kind of a thankless job and much, much more interesting to be an analyst. So I, as a boss, I was able to pick what um, areas I wanted to cover myself. And, you know, probably a fluke for somebody my age, but I have played video games since they were invented. Yeah. Um, I, I literally remember my dad taking me to a, a bar that served food, I want to say 1972, uh, so I was underage, but I was allowed to be there and have lunch. And we played Pong on a tabletop. And I totally remember doing it. You know, like the, the coffee table or the, the table in the bar had Pong, and we sat across from one another. And so I, you know, I remember buying an Atari 2600 and playing it on my, you know, 19-inch CRT TV in my apartment. And I remember buying an NES and a Super NES and, a, you know, Sega uh, Genesis and a N64 and a PS one, two, three, four, and on and on. And so in 2001, when I was picking up stocks, video games seemed like a fun sector to cover. I didn't truly know anything about them other than just being a, a gamer. And I'm a gamer. Uh, remember, I'm old. I'm a gamer back in the day when gaming was single player. You know, like it got, it didn't get any more involved than playing Pong against somebody else. So, although in the 99, 2000 timeframe, I'm sure that I played Counter Strike, you know, twice because I just remember being somewhere where there were a bunch of PCs networked and we did it. I wasn't into it. I thought multiplayer was stupid, but I picked up video games. And, uh, when I first started, there were 11 pretty substantial uh, publicly traded video game companies. Um, my job research is we, we're, we, we hire people that are called sell side analysts and we become experts in a sector. And then we advise, uh, 
professional investors, so the guys who run mutual funds and hedge funds um, we, and pension funds, we advise them on on investments. And the way that that's broken out, the investor side, typically the the analysts on the investor side are responsible for a thousand stocks or more. Yeah. Um, there are people who are called generalists who are technically responsible for you know twelve thousand stocks, but somebody who covers typically would cover tech, media, and telecom. So all tech companies, all software and hardware companies, all telecommunication companies, including equipment makers and networking companies, and all media companies, including games and and you know Disney. Um, that's easily a thousand stocks, probably more. They can't know that much about the stocks, so they they rely on guys like me who typically cover fifteen stocks. I, I cover twenty two, but I've been doing it so long. And so when I started, I chose to cover video games because there were eleven of them publishers, and I covered electronics boutique and GameStop. Um, at the time, they were separate companies. And then over the last you know fifteen years. There have been a lot of bankruptcies. You know, you know that a claim went away in 2003 or four, and Midway in 2008, I think, and Atari around the same time, and uh, THQ, and you know, we just lost all these companies. So I'm down to five now. Um, but that's you know, I don't cover the Japanese guys except for Nintendo, and there's really not uh, the Western guys. Essentially, consist of Ubisoft, Take Two, EA, and Activision. So. And there really isn't much left. And and because I covered GameStop and Electronics Boutique, I kind of tripped into covering um, Hollywood Video. And if you remember Hollywood Video, who rented DVDs, they started a concept called Game Crazy, and they put stores within their 5,500-square-foot DVD rental stores. They put in a 750-square-foot game store called Game Crazy. The average GameStop is about 1,500 feet, just so you can kind of put put that in perspective. And I thought, well, I should cover these guys because they're competing with GameStop. And then I realized you can't cover Hollywood video unless you cover Movie Gallery and Blockbuster. May all three of them rest in peace. And so I covered them for a while, and then I realized I can't cover movie rental physical unless I cover movie rental by mail, which was Netflix, and then movie rental in kiosks, which was Redbox. So I picked up all those guys, and Netflix led me to covering a bunch of other internet companies. So I ended up picking up Best Buy and Amazon and Facebook and Twitter and so I, you know, Zynga, uh, Glue Mobile. So I cover a lot of what appear to be random companies. But what really got me into it, aside from just generally being interested in in the, the sector, is I saw Bill Gates speak as the keynote speaker at CES, and I think it was 2000, but it might have been 2001, and he talked about the Xbox, so whatever CES they announced the Xbox, I'm pretty sure it was 2000, and he talked about how it was going to be a computer and be the entertainment hub in the living room, and when he said that, you know, something clicked, and it hit me, you know, that that we really don't have a way to get the internet connected to our televisions. And this Xbox back in 2000 or 2001 was was genius. And obviously, you know, here we are in 2017, and we have the internet on our phone, and we watch videos, you know, constantly all day long. But back then, it was really kind of you know groundbreaking. And so I I started thinking about coverage 
in the context of entertainment flowing to the living room. Um, and I've made my share of mistakes. You know, I, I called out uh, the Xbox One as being a television device, you know, cable device, and that just never happened. It was something that was planned, but but smart TVs kind of eliminated the need for that. Uh, and obviously the rise of Netflix streaming and Amazon streaming eliminated that. But, you know, that's really been my focus on kind of how entertainment flows. And clearly we've had a lot of changes in, you know, the fundamental businesses. Like I said, when I started, multiplayer was something that a bunch of nerds did by, you know, sitting in a room and, and linking their PCs together. And now we've got this robust, you know, internet based cloud-based multiplayer uh, gaming service that, you know, console probably has 60 or 70 million people playing every month. And PC, you know, if you if you count things like League of Legends, I mean, another 150 or 250 million people playing PC online multiplayer. So it's just amazing how essentially 10% of all the people connected to the Internet play games against one another. And, you know, that's only going to go up. So anyway, that's where I came from and, and kind of what I do. And my day job is telling investors what to expect from these companies. Mm-hmm. So um, something I learned back in college, I, I literally have only taken one course in this, in statistics, is that <clears throat> when you try to describe something, it, it, you know, the, the way to be accurate is to make sure that all of your errors cancel one another out. So the the term in statistics is the sum of the error terms equals zero, and that gets you pretty close. So you can be wrong on a game thinking about Activision and their revenues, and as long as you're wrong on one game by a million too low and another game by a million too high, you're going to hit their earnings number and their revenue number exactly. So I'm pretty unconcerned about being wrong on anything. Um, I am quite concerned about the sum of all my mistakes getting pretty close to zero. And the thing I do that differentiates me from my competitors, because there are 32 or three analysts who cover the game companies, is I have all my models are bottom-up built. So if I say Call of Duty is going to sell 20 million units and you think it's going to sell 15 million units, you can adjust the number and it will spit out a different number for Activision. But you might, you know, think that Overwatch is going to sell 15 and I might think it's going to sell 12 and you might think Skylanders is, you know, going to do 500 million and I might think it's going to do 400 million. Mm-hmm. So our number may still come out to be the same, you know, if you adjust everything. But, uh, I build my models that way. And, and so again, the only people who seem to care what my predictions are is the gaming press who doesn't really seem to get it. And as you know, uh, doing a podcast, there are no barriers to entry to, to being a a member of the gaming media. Mm. Anybody can, can blog, write, or have an opinion. Uh, I encourage you to go to NeoGAF if you (laughs) want to see, see a bunch of people with opinions. Um, and the thing that cracks me up is that, you know, I know I appreciate your question. The NeoGAF audience, uh, I would say, you know, the, the three or four times a year that I waste my time going there and reading a commentary about me, um, it, it, I would say about half of the comments are, I could do his job as well as him, and then why isn't he fired yet? I've been gainfully employed 
making a ton of money for, you know, gosh, uh, 16 years as a game analyst. And uh, I'm the last man standing. I mean, I don't think that, well, there's nobody still covering the sector that was when I started. And there are maybe, there's maybe one guy who was even doing it five years ago. Um, so there's a lot of turnover in the sector, and I'm the the gray-haired old man. Uh, and uh, the idea that I haven't been fired means that I'm clearly performing the task I'm assigned to perform, which is help investors make money. I'm very good at that. And who cares if I uh, if I think that the switch is going to sell a hundred million units or five million units? You know, as long as my Nintendo estimates are pretty close. And so that's how I do my job. Why do you think people do get so aggressively angry at your claims, whether you're right or wrong? I mean, I used to be uh, run a smaller site, so I had the like traffic figures in the back, and all the time I could see what's going on. And if we posted anything about you, suddenly we get a spike. Suddenly it's just this, you know, all the people on the site are talking about it in some way or going on that article. I mean, do you think it's the nature of video games and how passionate gamers are, or do you think there's something else surrounding that? Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, analogy to Trump. And, you know, why is Trump so polarizing? And, you know, I, whatever you think of him, he's opinionated and he expresses his opinion and he's impulsive and there's a record. So, you know, I, I, it's very funny. I mean, we're, we're taping this on the seventh day of his presidency. I, I can't remember in eight years really paying attention to anything Obama said or did more than seven times in eight years. Same with George W. Bush. You know, I can't remember actually being interested enough to post something on Twitter or Facebook or comment to people about it more than seven or eight times. And I think I'm seven for seven, seven, <laughs> seven days into Trump. So the point is that, you know, again, whatever you think of Trump, um, I, I'm very Trump-like in the 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 concept that I have opinions, I express them. I'm impulsive. I'm outspoken. I take a strong you know view on everything. And much like Trump, you know, I think that it's fair to say people who voted for him are are prone to defend him, and people who voted against him are prone to criticize him. And it's a very he's a polarizing figure. I'm the same. If I say something about a game or a console that you love, then you are my supporter. And if I say something critical about a game or a console that you love, you hate me. Um, and same thing, if I say something positive about something you hate, you're going to say I'm an idiot. If I say something negative about something, you know, that, that you hate, you agree with me. So it, it's, it's just one of those things. And I have views and, you know, I don't know why. Um, I think you could, you're, you're, you're good proof, good evidence that I'm responsive to requests. And your request to give you an hour of my time wasn't too much of an imposition for a Friday. So here you go. But I respond to people. So that's another reason I get published a lot. Yeah. I, th- I think so too. Uh, and we have to talk about it at some point in the Nintendo Switch <coughs> because we just recently had that strange press conference and at this point it seems like that's this weak launch lineup and a price point that was probably higher than some people predicted a lot of people are saying 250 ends up at 299 uh and also taking in you know factoring in the fact that wii u had such poor sales what do you 
expects from the Switch in year one of the Switch. Of course, this is what you do, and you mentioned uh, you were talking about it earlier about you know projections. Where do you kind of set the Switch at for year one? Do you think it'll be successful? Do you think that launch lineup is really going to impact it? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, there's such a split of opinion about what the device is and does. I mean, a lot of people believe that the Switch is no different from the Wii U and that the only difference is that the controllers are detachable from the tablet, but they think it's the same kind of control scheme. I see it differently, and and perhaps this is just that, you know, Nintendo initially intended the Wii U to be like a, a, a console version of the of the DS or the GameCube, but I mean, the, I mean, I have the Game Boy, but, but a handheld and they've, they've advanced their concept with the switch. I like it. So I think it's kind of an interesting gameplay mechanic. Um, I like the feel of, you know, holding the joy cons attached to the device, to the uh, tablet. Um, but a lot of people hate it. So, you know, I, I think it's probably going to, end up being a, an issue of software support and price. And with a $300 price point, it's pretty expensive unless it's the only console you buy. So it's expensive to be the second console in the house. And, you know, I do think wealthy PS4 owners and Xbox One owners will absolutely consider it. Um, the only thing you can count on on the software side is Nintendo titles. Yeah. And really, over the last, you know, 15 years, I know they have 30 different, you know, popular brands. They tend to only release about five or six games a year that anybody cares about. And they, they're not all games that everybody cares about. You know, much like I like FIFA, I don't like um, EA's NBA game. And I like um, uh, Mass Effect. I hate Dragon Age. Yeah. So, you know, so sometimes I like EA games. Sometimes I don't. They're not my kind of game. Um, it's the same with Nintendo. A lot of people, well, everybody likes Zelda. Most people like Super Mario. Um, but not everybody likes Fire Emblem or Xenoblade. I mean, those are niche interesting games, but they're not everybody's cup of tea. So it's hard to buy a console when there's only going to be two or three games that you want to play on it per year and it's if it if you have a ps4 or an xbox one you know you can play all the sports games and shooter games and bethesda games and you know everything else that comes out but if you only are going to buy one console it's a really tough purchase yeah and you know so i think this will be successful with nintendo fanboys who own a playstation or an xbox i think it's a hard decision for a family with a six-year-old who's thinking about buying their first console because the kid's going to want to play more than just Nintendo titles. So it really matters to me what we're going to see out of third-party support. Um, the, the number of publishers announced is big, but the titles are not. The titles aren't impressive. So I don't care if Skylanders is on there. You know, I care if Call of Duty or Overwatch is on there. And those weren't announced. Um, I don't care if NBA Live is, or 2K is there, excuse me, although that is probably the best game Take-Two makes, but I care if Red Dead's there, you know, so having Take-Two, you know, supporting the, the console doesn't matter if it's not all in, and I just don't know yet. Um, it sounds like this thing is too underpowered 
to make a game that you know that is designed for the Xbox One or PS4. It looks like the only games that are showing up are games that exist for the PS3 and Xbox 360. And I think that's an impediment because in, in another year or two, you know, you won't even get FIFA made for the Xbox 360. And so you might not have FIFA on this device. Yeah, is it even a bigger problem with Scorpio and, you know, Pro is not exactly a, you know, a 4.5, but with Scorpio coming out and graphic demands maybe even being higher, like, can the Switch fall even further behind before it's even released? Like, are we going to see any real third-party games that come close to what's out there uh, on Microsoft and Sony's platforms? You know, I, I'll wait and see what Scorpio is and where it's priced, but from what I've read, um, it's probably over-engineered. So, you know, I believe that it will run a game at, you know, full 4K at 240 frames a second, except that, do we really need that? You know, and I get that, you know, that the PS4 Pro doesn't do that. Um, there's a lot of room between... Uh, 1080p and 4K. 1080p is 2 million pixels. 4K is 8 million pixels. Um, my understanding is Oculus, for example, runs at 2.6 million pixels. So Oculus is at 4K. Yeah. And, you know, so when they say Scorpio is going to be 4K, if Oculus with a $1,500 PC won't run in 4K, do I, do you really believe that a Scorpio for four or five hundred bucks will run in 4K? I mean, I don't know. I want to see. So it sounds great and everybody seems all, you know, excited and drooling about it. Uh, the other thing is, you know, who has a 4K TV? Now it's not 3D. I get it. I mean, 4K is a bigger, is a bigger install base. And what I think is going to happen with 4K televisions is the same thing that happened with LED televisions where, you know, 10 years ago, LED TVs were 10,000 bucks if they existed at all. And we all bought LCD TVs, which were, you know, 3,000 bucks. Now, in a big screen, you can't find any LCD. It's LED only. Um, and they're, you know, 55 inch TVs are pretty consistently 550, you know, or lower. I actually saw Best Buy had their store brand 55 inch insignia for 279 this week. Oh my you God. Know, so 1080p. But, but, you know, that's LED. So yeah. it's only a matter of time before 4K TVs just replace 1080p TVs because it doesn't make sense to have two different screen technologies and the microprocessor, you know, chip that, that renders something in 4K is down to 10 bucks. So who cares? And I think that someday is 2018. I mean, I think that uh, you won't be able to buy a 1080p TV that's a new model. At the at Christmas 2018. So by the time we all have 4K TVs, maybe Scorpio does make sense. Um, the real problem is where's the content for 4K? Yeah. Because the broadcast standard is just not there. And you know, I guess people don't really get it, but but you know, over the air broadcast requires bandwidth, and cable broadcast requires bandwidth. Internet does too, but it, it, internet, we're getting stuff pushed out of 4K. Netflix is pushed out of 4K, if you, you know, at least Netflix originals. Um, all movies are being shot in 4K, but I don't think we're getting 4K television broadcast until 2020. And that's when I'm going to feel compelled to buy a 4K TV. So I literally, in June, uh, I, I literally had a television that I owned for 10 years. I moved in this house 10 years ago. Uh, my LCD uh, Sharp 
46-inch TV um, died. And, you know, it, I bought a, a Samsung 55-inch curved screen uh, LED 1080p TV. I skipped 4K. Yeah. I paid 600 bucks because 4K was 1400 And I thought, why? I'm not going to get a signal for another four or five years. You know, why am I going to screw around with this? So I saved 800 bucks. When they're the same price, of course, you'll just future-proof. But I don't think Scorpio is going to be as big a deal um, at launch unless game publishers and game developers say, we're all in, everything we make is going to be 4K. And honestly, I think you're talking 2.6 megapixels compared to 2 you know, for 1080p. I don't think you're going to get um, 4K games for a couple of cycles for a couple of years. Yeah, it feels too early to me. It's like I don't see a lot of I don't know a lot of people who play games that I know who are already all hundred percent in on four K. It feels like something that like you, like twenty twenty or when it becomes more viable, when it becomes cheaper, it seems like it'd be a better idea. And uh going back to the switch really quickly, what's really grabbed me about it is this idea that it can be one kind of major Nintendo console where it's it's handheld and it's home, where they could kind of focus all their resources on it instead of splitting it between the Wii U and the 3DS. Do you think that's actually what they're going to do? Do you think there will be a 3DS follow-up, or do you think they're going to push all their chips on the Switch and say, this is where all of our first-party development's going? You know, I don't think that they are enlightened enough to abandon the 3DS. Um, I think that they their style is to cling to their old business model, which is we make a handheld console and we make a home console and they are different and they have different uses. And I get it. I mean, the switch is definitely a crossover, but the Wii U was supposed to be and just didn't work. Um, I do think the portability of the switch obviously suggests that perhaps that will replace the, the 3DS, but the 3DS is coming down in price to 99 bucks and then 79 bucks that will happen. And as long as the switch is at 300, no, they're going to have two different strategies. So I would think of this more the way you think of owning a phone and owning a tablet. And a lot of people have both, even though we play the same game on both. Um, They just are different. And, you know, so I think Nintendo is going to cling to the 3DS as a platform until they, they are selling, you know, only one or two million of them a year, and there's just not enough software sales to justify keeping it going. They're still above ten, you know, so it's not it's not dropping like a stone. They're making plenty of money selling ten million of those a year, and you know, thirty or forty million pieces of software a year. Yeah. So I don't I don't see them abandoning it really quickly. But again, let's see what happens with their mobile initiative because that could hurt 3ds sales as well if if they start really getting successful on mobile. I'm not optimistic about that happening either. Can you see an early price cut for the Switch? Because with that 3DS, there was that ambassador program where everyone bought it. It was too expensive. They lower the price. They give the early, early adopters the additional games. Do you think 300 you know, you talk about it being a little bit too expensive. Do you think it might just be too high too early? Yeah, I mean, one of the... You should write this down because I don't do this very often. One of the really good things about Nintendo is that they're very disciplined on not losing money and they don't price anything below cost. Um, one of the bad things about them is sometimes they're overly aggressive on pricing, so that was a 3DS thing. But, uh, you know, I can't actually look at the Switch and think about it costing a lot less 
than $200 to make. And, you know, the retailer has to make a margin on it. Um, so, you know, maybe they can get to break even at 249 but but that would wipe out their profit. And so I don't see them dropping the price until their cost drops significantly below 200 bucks. And I, I just can't forecast how long that will take. It could happen in the first year. I don't think it happens in the first month or two. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the component cost of glass and I don't know what the guts are in the tablet. And you know, the the docking station and the controllers, absolutely, you know, those costs will come down quickly. And they're you know, I think it's interesting that they're charging so much for an extra set of Joy Cons oh, and for crazy. a standard controller. Yeah, I mean that's the part where they're being really greedy because you, you know that, you know, that those Joy-Cons don't cost any more than a standard controller costs to make. So it's pretty crazy that they're that they're asking so much, but they are. So Yeah, I think that Pro Controller is like $80 or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's very crazy. strange, the accessories around right. that. Like, the whole thing just seems too expensive. Uh, and you did mention Scorpio, which, you know, coming out later this year, which is fascinating to me because right now we're in this weird spot where the PS4 has definitely outperformed the Xbox One pretty significantly. Um, but the PS4 Pro hasn't really grabbed on in terms of public opinion, maybe the way they hoped. Uh, you mentioned you think Scorpio might not really be as viable until... 2020. So, do you think Microsoft needs it to hit pretty hard this year and next year to keep pace at all with PlayStation? I mean, you look at uh, Scalebound was one of their first party games that just got cancelled, and we haven't really seen a lot of games. There's not a lot of announcements coming out with them. Like, what's kind of the the state of Microsoft and the Xbox division in 2017 for you? Well, you know, again, the only people who seem to care about whether Microsoft's in first or second or fanboys, yeah. um, Microsoft's pretty much destined to be second. They're just, they're not going to be first this cycle. And, you know, if you think back to, you know, where they came from with the regular Xbox and then the Xbox 360, it was quite a feat that they were able to even, you know, sell as many consoles as Sony did, um, in, in the Xbox 360 PS3 cycle. And, that was because Sony screwed up at the outset and charged 600 bucks. You know, had they not, I think the PlayStation 3 would have probably outsold the Xbox 360 by a lot. So Sony, you know, flipped back to getting the pricing right. And if you remember, the Xbox launched at 500. Uh, the PlayStation launched at four. And, you know, Sony just won back all those people who had defected in the prior cycle. So I don't think Microsoft ever beat Sony again. Um, I don't know that it matters. I mean, obviously they love to win, but I don't think it matters. I think that they view the business on a standalone basis as being profitable. And, you know, sure, they'd love it to be more profitable, but it's plenty profitable. You know, we don't have numbers on, um, on Xbox Live Gold members, but, you know, I'm guessing there's 35 million of them yeah and you have 35 million people paying you 50 or 60 bucks a year that's a you know almost two billion dollar business plus whatever they download um you know they're really profitable on xbox and sure i think they love 70 million and they'd love to sell more consoles but you know they're in the same boat as nintendo they're not willing to sell their consoles below cost so you know, we'll, we'll see. I, I think that 
You know, Sony's just executed really well this cycle. I mean, the PS4 is a great device. The PS4 Pro is a great device. I think PlayStation VR is cool. Um, Scorpio's got some catching up to do, and, and you know, I, I doubt they will catch up. Uh, you just mentioned PlayStation VR, which I think is something I want. It's fascinating to me. I mean, I, I work for a studio that made a PSVR game, um, and you, you hear a lot of projections, you hear a lot of numbers thrown around about, you know, what the thing actually sold. Do you think the PSVR was successful enough to sort of bring virtual reality into the mainstream? Like, do you think at this point VR has a bright future, or do you kind of see it as a gimmick that may be similar to 4K, we're not ready for yet until the technology advances to a certain state? Um, you know, I don't know that they they really tried to to sell a whole lot out of the out of the box. Mm. Um, I mean, you can get a, a PlayStation VR now. I think that Sony restricted supply because I you know I think that thing's expensive to make. So you know, my bias is that if Oculus costs as much as it does, you know, the PlayStation VR probably costs $300, $350 to make. And so I don't think Sony's making any money on them at all. And I, I am confident that they only shipped, you know, a million or so, and they're going to let this thing grow as software kind of grows. So I, I think it's really early, and uh, I like it. I mean, it, you know, I haven't yet played Resident Evil 7, uh, I actually literally got a code for it yesterday, so I'm gonna I'm gonna download and play it. The Resident Evil demo scared the shit out of me. Yeah. We actually we took we took turns in my family. You know, I, during Christmas we had like 20 people over. We had like 20 people try it and do the demo. And we were just watching them like jump. You know, really really fun. So you know, I I I think that it's experiences like that that are gonna really make the system, and they're they're really creepy and fun. Um, so, you know, give it time. But I think PSVR is actually a, a great idea. Uh, VR has a lot more potential for non-gaming applications, you know, commercial, like looking at houses or, you know, or, or doing a physical exam or whatever. Um, I think that's where you know, education, and I actually think that's where it ends up being something people feel they have to have. But it's early. You know, the technology is still new, you know, kind of unproven. Um, but you know, the, people are coming up with pretty clever games, like the, uh, yeah, I forgot what they call it, but Nobody Will Explode, the, the, oh, the yeah, bomb. Keep talking, nobody yeah, Keep Talking, Nobody Explodes. That's fun. Yeah. You know, like, that's just really goofy and fun. And uh, everybody, again, I've had 20 people over playing VR. Everybody really likes it. So, and there aren't that many games that, that a crowd can participate in, but that one is fun. And people just love it. So, yeah, Job Simulator is another one where you can kind of just show people that and kind of explain, like, this is how cool VR really is. But there definitely yeah. is this concern. I don't know if you have this concern, too, where if, you know, PSVR has only sold, like, shipped a million units and, you know, with Vive and Oculus, they're, you know, haven't sold that many. Do you think there's any sort of actual motivation for people to make games in VR since there might not be that much money there? Or because there are so few things, is the attach rate so high that once you release a game in VR, everyone just gets it because they're just hungry for new software? Yeah, I mean, the, the easy answer is no. There's no incentive to making games. Um, the more difficult answer is, you know, how much will Sony subsidize and how long? And uh, they're subsidizing now. Um, you know, the Oculus guys are subsidizing now. So, you know, it, it's going to be chicken and egg. It's going to take a while. I mean, this is sort of like when the NES came out. 
um, the games were made by Nintendo. You know, they weren't made by third parties because people didn't get it. And even the Super NES, I mean, the reason PlayStation won in 95 is because they convinced Electronic Arts to put all its sports games in PlayStation. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, you know, it's going to take some publisher to say we're willing to make an investment here. And it'll be iterative. It'll take a few years. But, I, I mean, VR is cool. I, I like it. It's, But it's still gimmicky. It's still for rich people because, you know, it's a $400 expenditure or, or 500 if you get all the, the uh, camera and, and um, paddles. Uh, what do you call them? The, yeah. Uh, the wands. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I forgot what they call What do they call those things? I know. For some reason, I cannot move. 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 PlayStation move. Yeah. Move. Yeah, PlayStation move. But it, it's an extra 100 bucks to get all that stuff. And, you know, sure, over time, you know, but for 500 bucks, it's it's a toy for the wealthy. Yeah. And it's going to take a while. I mean, I think if the PlayStation 5 launches with VR built in, then that'll be really cool. Yeah, and you bring up the PlayStation 5 is a perfect setup for what I want to talk about uh, kind of last year, because I talked to Lauren Lanning last year kind of about the idea of console half-steps. This is right before Pro came out. This is, you know, right after Scorpio was announced and detailed. Uh, he kind of sees consoles moving forward almost like phones, where it's going to be this upgrade process where it's just continual half or even third steps, where it's not really, you know, a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox, I don't know what you call it at that point, Xbox 2. Uh what do you kind of see for home consoles moving forward? Do you think we'll see a PlayStation 5 by, like, 2020, or do you think we'll continue to see these half-steps moving forward? No, the plan is to uh, make sure that each new console is backward compatible to the immediately prior version. So the PS4 Pro, every soft, every piece of software made for it has to work on the PS4. So the PS5 every piece of software will have to work on the PS4 Pro, not necessarily on the PS4. Gotcha. I think that's how they're going to do it, so that what they do with these half-steps is eliminate the truncation of the cycle. So you don't have that cliff where, you know, today, if you're still an Xbox 360 owner or a PS3 owner, the number of titles is fewer and fewer and fewer, and you finally have to just use your old console as a paperweight and get rid of it and buy a new console. I think there, you know, you could have passed up on the X on the iPhone six S, you know, when the iPhone six came out and, and skip the six S and upgraded to a seven, uh, you know, I'm on the uh, number cycle on iPhones. I had a six and a seven and a five. I never had the five S and never had the six S. So, you know, that's fine. And yet I don't feel diminished because people had a six S when I had a six the PS4 owners don't feel diminished because some people have a PS4 Pro. Xbox One owners won't feel diminished when somebody has a Scorpio because the software will work. Um, but when the PS5 comes out, the PS4 owners will feel like they have to upgrade. The Pro owners won't. Oh. And they'll probably still sell the Pro. So the idea is you can do a half upgrade. You know, what happens if the Pro is 200 bucks when the PS5 comes out? They'll sell you know, 20 million PS4 Pros. Yeah. And I, that's, I think they're trying to let people have a lower entry point, not have this giant cliff where there's no software and you have to spend five or 600 bucks to get a new console and some new games. I think they're trying to smooth it out, which is really smooth. Do you have an actual date in mind for when you think we might even hear anything about a PS5? 
You know, I think Sony's probably going to wait and see what happens with the Scorpio. And if the Scorpio puts pressure on them, and if it's really that much better, maybe they'll accelerate. But, you know, back to my 4K TV thing, I don't see 4K broadcast until 2020. And I think 4K broadcast is what's going to cause people to switch their TVs over. So I think that's a good time to launch a new console. And that uh, makes sense to me, but, you know, who knows? All right. Gotcha. So they'll do it when they can make money. Yeah. Uh, last thing, if people want to find you on social media or watch the Pactor Factor, what's the best way to do that? Uh, Twitter, I'm at Michael Pactor. And uh, Pactor Factor is on YouTube, so it's free. You can just, if you just type in Pactor, I think it pops right up. Um, and if you care to spend money, I do it for a friend. I do it for free, but a friend of mine runs sifted.net and the SIFTD. And the Sifted website allows you to uh, you fill out a questionnaire of things you're interested in, and it will you know, meta-search articles and sort them and present them so that you don't have to look things up every day. So if you only care about Nintendo articles and things I say, your sifted feed will have everything, every place I appear and Nintendo articles. If you care about, you know, VR or you care about Xbox or you care about, you know, a game, you know, Fallout or Elder Scrolls 6, <clears throat> it'll sort that stuff. So it's actually kind of a cool site. Uh, yeah. There's Shane Satterfield. Yeah, Shane Satterfield, right? Yeah, Shane, Shane, uh, you know, was the editor in chief at, uh, Game Trailers. And so he, does a weekly several hour podcast and that's on the site. My stuff's on the site. It's 50 bucks a year. So you know, it, it, that's a lot of money, but, and I insist that my stuff be free because I don't, I don't want to do something behind a paywall only. But anyway, two ways to do it. Watch YouTube a week after I do it or watch it on sifted every week, real time. Um, and check out the site. So he's a good guy. I'd like him to thrive and survive. All right, great. Well, uh, again, Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, I think it was like three years ago when I was at your E3 party, and you're so busy, it's hard to actually talk to you. So it's nice to actually sit down and you know go over longer conversation now. So I really appreciate you coming on. Well, and, uh, well I, I hope you're coming again. So uh, I, 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 that's the plan. I would love to. Uh, this, this, this is this going to be a good one. We've got uh, last year. I had a lot of uh, a lot of developers who, because of that stupid EA Play competing event yeah you know last year and the year before with the there was some pc uh gaming forum that intel not intel uh, amd held uh dir directly during my party this year ea play moved forward uh there's no competing pc thing so uh all the guys you actually care about will be there and be fun uh, it's i mean i've already had like everybody reach out saying i'm coming this year for sure so it'll be fun it's a good party. Yeah, no, it, it's one of the coolest parties I've ever been to at a gaming event. So, yeah, yeah would love to go back this year. Awesome. Uh, all right, yeah, thanks again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.